Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In the second of our short talks on transport, Roger Hobbs tells us about the development of Britain's railways, with a special focus on the Great Western Railway. My talk is in two parts. One is about the railways in the UK, the highs and lows, from 1600 to the present day. And the second half of my short talk is going to be about the construction of the Great Western Railway. My interest in railways goes back before my teenage years when seeing steam engines passing through Guildford Station at speed or shunting engines at Farnham Station. Some of you may not know, but the Merritt Tyres building was the goods yard in Farnham. And they used to deliver from there to the likes of Woolworths and Elphix, and you could pick up parcels from there. Railways have featured in Britain's landscapes for over 400 years. Built in the early 17th century, the first primitive wagonways were created to transport coal and other minerals from the nearest rivers using horse-drawn wagons with flangeless wheels running in cast-iron plateways, many of which served as feeders in Britain's expanding network of over 4,000 miles of waterways. The transport system offered huge capabilities for moving raw materials and finished goods from one end of the country to the other, but this was limited by the pace of, of its horse-drawn power. All this was to change, however, with the invention of the steam engine, one of the most important technological breakthroughs ever witnessed by mankind. The steam engine heralded the, the railway revolution, sealing our position as the pioneers of the modern rail transport and changing the face of the world forever. Cornishman Richard Revwillick, pioneering high-pressure steam railway locomotive, made its debut in 1804 when it hauled a loaded train on the Pendarren Plateway in South Wales. Steam locomotives designed by John Hacksworth for use on colliery railways in the northeast of England soon followed, but these primitive machines were rapidly ellipsed by the George Stevenson self-taught genius who many considered to be the father of railways. Robert Stevenson, the only son of George Stevenson, was also a great engineer. His funeral in 1859 in London was a grand affair attended by thousands of mourners. He was buried in Westminster Abbey. Like his predecessors, Stevenson began by building locomotives for the use on colliery railways, but his vision led him further to the building of the Stockton and Darlington, the world's first public railway to use steam locomotives. Opening in 1825, this was followed in 1830 by the first ever intercity railway, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. Stevenson's son was to share his passion for steam power, designing locomotives such as the Rocket, which went on to win the 1829 Rainhill Trials 
From then on, the evolution of steam locomotive was rapid, culminating in 1938 with a world speed record of 126 miles per hour, set by Mallard, a record that it still holds today. For those who don't know the Rainhill Trials, while the Liverpool and Manchester was being built, the company directors organised a competition to find out if locomotives were more suitable for hauling trains. At this early stage in their development, steam locomotives were in their infancy and often proved unreliable. Even until 1833, the Stockton and Darlington Railway continued to rely on horsepower to haul their passenger trains. The competition took place on October 1829 at Rains Hill on a one and a half mile section of level track that had already been completed. The company offered £500 for the winner. Performing in the front of a panel of distinguished officials, it had to satisfy the rather complicated conditions of weight and load set by the organisers and required to make 10 return trips without refuelling equivalent to travelling the 30 miles between Liverpool and Manchester at the average speed of no less than 10 miles per hour with 30 miles performed at top speed. After the gruelling test, locomotives then had to repeat the process equivalent to the return journey from Manchester to Liverpool. The competition caught the imagination of the British public with 10 entries. Five of these were purely flights of fancy only existing on paper. The five remaining entries that succeeded in starting the competition were themselves very mixed bunch and all but one fell by the wayside. To cut the story short, the ultimate winner of the Rains Hill Trials was Robert Stevenson's rocket built by his locomotive building company in Newcastle. It featured many groundbreaking innovations and kick-started Britain's railway revolution. The Grand Junction Railway ran from Newton Junction on the Liverpool and Manchester Railway to Birmingham existed between 1833 and 1846 when it was amalgamated with another company. A frenzy of speculation by investors large and small saw railway mania reach its peak in 1846 when 272 Acts of Parliament authorised 9,500 miles of new railway, many of which were never built. Countless investors lost their life savings an unscrupulous villain of the peace, George Hudson, was ousted from his empire, a broken man. He was known as the Railway King in the 1840s and he was responsible for financing and creating and controlling major parts of the railway network. But his unscrupulous business practices led to his downfall and his disgrace in 1871. The former millionaire left effects worth less than £200. As the 19th century progressed, so did Britain's railway network, and by the 20th century had it reached virtually every corner of the land. At its peak, extending to around 23,000 route miles and employing around 600,000 people, combined with the Victorian entrepreneurial spirit, limitless supplies of coal and cheap labour, Steam railways were its foundation stones and underpinned Britain's industrial revolution, securing its position as the most powerful nation in the world at that time. The first major threat to Britain's rail network came in 1914 as the possibility of war loomed. The government brought the railways under their control in a move to protect such a valuable strategic resource. They survived the war in a rundown state. The Big Four grouping of 1923 led to a creeping modernisation such as the Southern Railways, Third Railway Electrification Scheme, 
the standardization of steam locomotive types and most importantly the competition that resulted in the golden age of high-speed rail travel. All this was to come to an abrupt end when Britain once again was at war with Germany. Over the next six years Britain's railways sustained enormous damage from enemy bombing and overloading due to transporting vast quantities of war materials, especially in the run-up to D-Day. As in the First World War, women took on many previously only male roles on the railways as their menfolk fought overseas again. Once again they were dismissed at war's end and those that remained were underpaid and treated as second-class employees, a situation that wouldn't change in almost 30 years. The railways were finally nationalised in 1948 with the creation of British Railways. Modernisation was desperately needed, but the country was close to bankruptcy in the post-war period. Progress was painfully slow. VR inherited a motley collection of steam locomotives, some of them dating back to the Victorian era. A total of 999 more efficient locomotives were constructed between 1951 and 1960, but the modernisation plan announced in 1955 was to spell the end of BR's steam locomotives. Some of them were only a few years old, replacing them with hurriedly introduced diesel electric and hydraulic models. Around 3,000 miles of loss-making rural rails were closed between 1948 and 1962, and with advances in road transport coming at a pace, and BR plagued through out the 1950s by damaging industrial disputes, more and more freight traffic was being permanently lost to the road haulage. Britain's railways were running at a loss to the taxpayer, and this deficit kept growing year on year. Enter Dr Beachy then the technical director of ICI, who was appointed by the pro-road and anti-rail Conservative government to wield the axe and return the railways to profit. Published in 1963, the notorious Beeching Report resulted in the closure of 2,500 stations and over 4,000 miles of railway by the mid-1970s, together with the loss of nearly 68,000 jobs. The extradition of standard gauge steam haulage on BR was achieved in 1968 when the railways entered a supposedly new, shiny, efficient and modern era. With the likes of the intercity expanding, the electrification programme and the future was reborn, British rail started to look more promising. Widely seen as a prelude to privatisation, the six regions of BR were replaced by business sectors in 1982. The Serpil report in 1983, which suggested closing 80% of British railways, was quietly forgotten by the Conservative government. The Railway Act of 1993 finally brought the end of 45 years of rail nationalisation, ushering in a new era of train operating companies, freight operating companies, rolling stock operating companies, the control of the infrastructure, including track signalling, tunnels, bridges and most of the stations was handed over to rail track. But in the wake of several horrific railway accidents, the rail track was declared bankrupt in 2001. Its role was taken over by the network rail, not-for-profit, government-created company. With increased government investment in the infrastructure, rising passenger numbers and steadily increasing freight traffic, the future now looks brighter for British railways than it has for 80 years. However, 
British lags miserably behind many European and Asian countries when it comes to dedicated high-speed railways. Despite the opening of the Channel Tunnel in 1994 and HS1 in 2007, when HS2 is finished between London and the Midlands and the North, but we will never come close to other countries such as France and Japan have already achieved. It is a sobering thought that although it was the birthplace of railways and we, we were once at the spearhead of technical innovation, two world wars, a lack of investment, labour disputes, ill-conceived decision-making and poor management have seen its railways fall far behind those of other advanced nations. The second part of my talk is about the Great Western Railway. This started about 1835 after finally getting Parliament's authorisation. The port of Bristol was a busy place in the early 19th century with ships plying their international trade across the Atlantic and beyond. Communications between the city and other parts of Britain, in particular London, were very poor apart from the slow and often dangerous sea-going route around Land's End. The uncomfortable stagecoach journey along the turnpike road could take at least a day even by the late 18th century when the first mail coach was introduced. As early as 1824, a scheme to link the two cities by railway had been proposed, but this came to nothing, as did another in 1832. The turning point came in 1833, when a group of Bristol businessmen appointed a young engineer, 27-year-old Isambard Kingdom Brunel, to survey the route and, and yet another proposed railway to London. By August, the survey of a near-level route via Bath, the, the village of Swindon and the Thames Valley to Ballanton had been completed. The two boards of directors established, one in Bristol and the other in Paddington, and the Great Western Railway was born. Parliament finally gave the go-ahead on the 31st of August 1835 after the initial rejection of the scheme. No gauge had been stipulated in the Act and two months later the GWR directors opted for speed and comfort for the broad gauge 7-foot railway line. Most other railways around Britain were all built to what became known as a standard gauge 4-foot 8.5 inch width. Brunel appointed Daniel Gooch as the GWR's first mechanical engineer in 1837 a position to be later held by such engineers as William Dean, George Jackson Churchwood, Charles Collett and Frederick Hawksworth. The 118-mile journey was built in nine sections, the first from Paddington to Maidenhead opening on the 4th of June 1838, to Twyford on the 1st of July 1839, on to Reading on March 1840, to Steventon the 1st of June, Farringdon Road on the 20th of July, Hay Lane near Swindon on the 17th of December and Chippenham on the 31st of May 1841. From the Bristol end, the section to Bath to Temple Meads opened on the 31st of August, but the complete opening of the line was delayed by the construction of the box tunnel, not opening until 1841. 4,000 navvies were working on this 3,212-yard long tunnel at the peak of its construction, to whom 100 died in accident. It was also built with great accuracy, and when the two ends met underground, they were less than two inches apart. It was said that Brunel deliberately aligned the tunnel so that when viewed from the western end, the sunshine could be seen through it. 
The Warncliffe Viaduct was a brick-built viaduct that carries the Great Western Railway main line over the River Brent between Hanwell and Selfall. This was named after Lord Warncliffe, who was the chairman of the parliamentary committee that steered the passage of the GWR through Parliament. Another major engineering feat on the line was the Sonning Cutting, Easter Reading. The cutting was over a mile long and 60 feet deep and was excavated by hundreds of navvies using just picks and spades and wheelbarrows, taking over two years to complete. Brunel designed imposing termini fit for the modern railway at each end of the line. Temple Mead still stands be as a car park and without any rail tracks. Much of the Paddington station was designed by Brunel along with his associate Robert Wyatt, but not completed <coughs> until 1854. There were no stations at Swindon or Didcot when the line opened, but this was soon to change when the former became the junction for GWR's route to South Wales via Gloucester and the company's main works. Didcot soon developed as an important junction for the Oxford-Birmingham line. Swindon grew from a small village to become the largest railway town in Britain, with the railway works in its heyday in the 1930s employing over 14,000 people. The first locomotives built by GWR were a motley collection of engines ordered by Brunel from six different manufacturers. On his appointment as chief mechanical engineer, Daniel Gooch initially purchased 12 star-class engines from Robert Stevenson & Co before he designed several classes of locomotives using standardised parts such as the highly successful Firefly and Sun passenger classes. The former was capable of an unheard speed of 60 miles per hour. The opening of the Swindon Railway Works in 1843 soon ushered in a golden age of steam locomotive building that finally ended in 1960 when British Rail's last steam locomotive appropriately named Evening Star was rolled out. It became obvious in the 1830s that Brunel's unique broad gauge was out of step with the rest of the nation's expanding standard gauge system of four foot eight and a half inches, mandatory for any new railway in Great Britain. The problem was when the trains got from the east and they wanted to go west, they had to stop and change trains to go onto the wider line. And the reason Brunel did that was for comfort and speed, but it was very costly to do, and Brunel was nearly fired by his governors for the cost of the line was went up considerably from the original estimate. That's probably the reason that he didn't pay very well. He didn't pay the contractors when they finished. Even when they'd given a quotation, he argued about the price right at the end. He lost a lot of good contractors over that. The problem was eventually addressed by gradually converting the GWR track to standard gauge between 1864 and 1892. After Brunel's death on the 15th of September 1859, aged only 53, the GWR prospered and within a few years spread its tentacles across southwest England, West Midlands and South Wales. Brunel's Paddington to Bristol route has stood the test of time and it was announced in 2012 that the line was to be electrified, one of the last major electrifications on Britain's railways. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group.
Thank you very much for listening to this talk.